Welcome to Humanity Wired, a podcast that explores the human rights impacts of technology today and tomorrow. I am your host, Amy Lair. I'm the director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. On this podcast, I speak with software engineers, computer scientists, human rights defenders, and policymakers who share the same goal of making technology work for humanity, not against us. Several incidents in recent years have shown that online hate speech can lead to real-world violence. The shootings of six people in a Sikh temple in Wisconsin in 2012 and nine people at a black church in South Carolina in 2015. The shootings in mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, and a Walmart in a majority Hispanic part of El Paso. These all had one thing in common. The respective shooters used online platforms to express their hatred. Hate speech online is one of the challenges of our time, and I think it can be easy to be negative about how we are going to make progress on these problems. But I'm hopeful that today's podcast will help us understand what some of the potential solutions are. With us today is Britton Heller, founding director of the Center on Technology and Society for the Anti-Defamation League. She is now of counsel at Foley Hoag LLP and a senior associate for the Human Rights Initiative at CSIS. She's also a technology and human rights fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. Britton will help us navigate through the complex issues surrounding online hate speech, how it connects to real-life violence, and what the roles of governments, companies, and citizens are. Britton, it's really good to be speaking with you today on what is obviously a really complex topic. There's a lot of concern, obviously, about online speech and how that is linked to, you know, violence in the, in the everyday world. But do you really think that online speech is exacerbating violence? Are we actually seeing more violence or new types of patterns of violence? Or is it just simply a new medium? So that in Rwanda, we saw, you know, hatred incited on radio, and now it's Facebook. Is this really a game changer? The challenge in determining the impact of online speech is that it is a new medium. So we don't have a lot of research to compare before and after. That said, organizations that track incidences of discrimination or racially motivated violence, like the Anti-Defamation League, have found correlations between increased online hate speech and increased hate crimes targeting groups. This isn't a question of perception, it's an actual problem. I think it's an actual problem. When you look at the theory of dangerous speech, which was developed by Susan Benish, it talks about speech that is likely to incite violence. You can pull examples of that from Rwanda. You can pull examples of that from cultures across the world, time periods across the world. All the hallmarks stay the same. What we have now with online activity is a bigger megaphone and rocket fuel. So in terms of how this challenge is now being combated, what are social media companies doing now? A lot of social media companies are trying to invest more in content moderation schemes. If you looked at what happened in early December, YouTube just announced that they're going to be staffing up moderators to really help police controversial content. And that, that's a term that we use for for hate speech, harassment, all these things kind of put together. So they're investing more in their infrastructure, but at the same time, they're not really changing the rules to make this type of speech less pervasive. And when you talk about the rules, what do you mean? So companies aren't bound by the First Amendment because they're private entities. What you look at when you look at the governance structures of tech companies is you look to the terms of service or the community standards. Those are the four corners of the universe when you're trying to figure out 
what online content is and how you can moderate it. And it's always been my understanding that in a way, companies have a lot more flexibility than, say, the U.S. government would because of the First Amendment and the fact that they're not bound by it. So they have greater discretion in terms of what they can take down, for example. So what you're saying is the rules aren't really changing. They're not changing their terms of service. They're increasing their capacity to enforce what they already have. On that note, I have a question, um, which is that obviously there's been a lot of discussion in sort of policy realms around the use of algorithms to try to take down content that violates the terms of service. Do you see the fact that YouTube is now hiring a lot more humans as a sign that the algorithms just aren't working? I think it's a sign that companies realize that context matters. When you're looking at hate speech, you can't really use a filter to try to get a grasp of it. The same word used by different people in different situations, even um, within the same community, can mean two very different things. One example is um, there's a two-word phrase that more often than not will follow the word bitch on a Facebook post. If you can guess the word, uh, I'd be very surprised because most people's mind will go to terrible misogynistic things, but the phrase is actually happy birthday. <laughs> so <gasps> happy birthday. So if you were if you were filtering out, if you're trying to filter out misogynistic content by looking for nasty language, nobody gets their happy birthday. <laughs> and, and it works the same way with hate speech, where if you try to filter a, a filter-based approach, you're going to capture people who are trying to fight back with counter speech. You're going to capture activists and dissidents and journalists who are trying to report about the phenomenon. And you're going to capture people who are trying to actually engage in civil discourse and discuss this. So a filter-based approach just won't work. I think that's interesting. Another thing I, I believe YouTube just announced was that they're going to look more at the sort of patterns of speech in terms of people who like maybe one single statement wouldn't rise the level of violating their terms of service, but a pattern of speech over time, let's say targeting particular individuals, etc., does, they're looking at that now more holistically to understand when people are actually harassing others online and so forth. I think that's a smart approach that companies can take, where if you're not focusing on content, you can make sure to be more protective of freedom of expression. And the way you do that is you focus on actors and behaviors that are indicative that somebody is being targeted. You can see that much more easily than you can identify dirty words. A bit along those lines, one of the critiques you hear about social media is that, in a way, these, these actors that have more extreme speech get more airtime, they get more attention because of the nature of algorithms that drive people to content that will keep them hooked. Do you feel like companies are tweaking their algorithms or otherwise helping diminish the spread of some of that messaging? Have they managed to do that yet? I don't see many indications that the companies are doing that because it would require a, a fundamental rejiggering of how they work. The algorithms for many social media companies are designed to reward engagement. That tends to overlap with salacious or hateful speech sometimes because it gets people really emotionally engaged. And if you're an algorithm, you're not going to look necessarily at the nature of the content because you can't determine context, but you're going to be able to see that when people write these kind of things or when people promote this type of message, 
it gets people to respond to it or to read it or to click on it. And that benefits the companies. And to me, that just seems like one of the most significant ongoing challenges, right, is the business model. How are companies doing in terms of identifying hotspots or places where there's likely to be outbreaks of significant communal violence? I'm thinking of places like Myanmar and India, Sri Lanka, et cetera. Are they focusing on risk and doing effective risk analysis in terms of where they put their resources? I think they can do better. Part of the the challenge that I've been seeing in, in the last six months is that many of the areas that you, you can anticipate outbreaks of hate speech that lead to violence overlap with elections. And people are so concerned about disinformation or electoral interference, they're not focusing on the other attendant risks that go along with that. As a second part to that, I also see companies not focusing as much attention on situations where there are internet shutdowns. When you see an internet shutdown, you, you really can't gauge the quality of discourse that's that's going on inside um, because reporting doesn't come out. So I think that if companies took a more holistic, human rights-centric approach, that would actually be the best thing to both protect freedom of expression and combat hate speech. And thinking about the problems with internet shutdowns, there's obviously a debate right now and a hot topic in Washington is really around encryption of messaging services and, you know, should they be encrypted? Is it good for law enforcement, et cetera? As companies encrypt more and more messaging, we know that apps like WhatsApp have been used to encourage uh, communal violence, particularly I'm thinking of India. But uh, does that then mean that the companies don't have the tools to address these sorts of challenges because they can't actually see what people are saying? I think there are things that companies can do with end-to-end encrypted messages. If you look at organizations like uh, the Stanford Internet Observatory, Alex Stamos has been doing a lot of interesting research into technical ways that you actually could have content moderation in that kind of environment. If you're not looking at technical fixes, the kind of restraints that WhatsApp put into place they actually seem to be working. And, and by that, I mean limiting for the forwarding of messages to five times each and limiting the number of recipients per message to 256 people. It's very effective. The, the reason it's effective is because of the concept of productive friction, right? You, you make it harder for people to misbehave. If they're going to harass or create hate speech, they're going to have to be more dogged at it. A lot of times when people do this, they're, they're kind of casual consumers of it. And they'll push it out because it's easy or because they're angry and this is kind of a flash expression of that anger. If you make it more challenging to do, they're not going to do it. That makes a lot of sense. And that was one of the developments I thought was really interesting as we do look at particularly encrypted messaging, but in general, just ways of limiting the reach of, of this kind of speech. When I look at hate speech... I think it's a technical problem with a social solution. Well, there is a question, I guess, I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but in a way, there's a question of sort of society being capable of intelligently absorbing information. And is that what you mean, that we actually need to be doing more work in terms of educating ourselves about information received through these media? I think so. When you're looking for solutions to to this type of phenomenon, I think more of it lies in in the social realm than trying to build new tools to fix the pre-existing tools. Right. Because things will keep developing and it's more about our ability as a society to maintain our values and be intelligent consumers, I think. 
Exactly. And I also used to see the pace at which people would create new memes or new targeting campaigns or new techniques to make other people's lives miserable. And that far outpaced any technical solution to clean up the internet. Are there any countries or, or areas of countries that are doing a really good job around public education in terms of you know how to understand and use social media and, and interpret information received? Yeah, some of the Scandinavian countries have dealt with this in a proactive and effective way. I think that Finland has some of the best civic education around disinformation. And while that's different than hate speech, a lot of times the vectors that people use to spread disinformation are hate speech. So they've created these civic education programs that seem to be very effective, and they're not just targeting young people. It actually goes forward and is is trying to reach older demographics as well who are more likely to spread disinformation. That's interesting. I was aware of what they were doing in their schools, but I haven't heard as much about outreach to older generations. Uh, so that's that's interesting. I mean, I'd be curious as to how they're actually doing that, how you um, roll that out when you don't have a medium like schools. Yeah. I think that, that another reason it's so effective is because Finland's had a, a very tempestuous relationship with Russia for a very long time. So they're more aware of the concept of, uh, of disinformation and foreign interference. So they don't have to get over the initial threshold of... Uh, Disbelief? Of shock and dismay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point. But I, I do think it's important just, I guess, for the U.S. as well to take note of the fact that there are effective programs out there. This is not an, you know, an impossible task to have a population that can show discretion when, when dealing with social media. I look at it more as as building resiliency rather than stop stopping hate speech. I, I do a lot of advising for companies, and if you try to get the threshold down to zero, you're going to fail. Uh, there is there's just no real way that, that that's a reasonable goal. But if you try to make the goal to have people respond better when they come across it, while trying to reduce incidences and put in that concept of productive friction. I think that's something that both governments and companies can think about as a, a more reasonable way to think about regulation. I think that's really helpful. And actually, on that note, I was curious, I know you've been spending a lot of time in Europe um, engaging with European governments around their policy on online speech. And so I, I'd love to hear a little bit about where that work stands now, and, and then maybe we can reflect a little bit on sort of differences between the US and Europe. Sure. Um, I've been part of the transnational high-level working group on content moderation. So we've met three times now. The first time we focused on hate speech. Uh, I'm, I'm on the steering committee for the project. So we, we had a deep examination about what hate speech looks like on both sides of the Atlantic, how we can take pro-freedom of expression stances towards dealing with it, what's a human rights protective way of suggesting that we, we deal with what's really a transnational problem. The second meeting we have focused on disinformation, and we recently came back from the final meeting, which focused on artificial intelligence. The paper should be coming out shortly from the AI session, but the other papers have been released on the website. And what's the sort of end goal of this? Is it just to inform policymakers? Should we expect action soon, at least on the European side? Where, where do things stand? 
the purpose of the group is to help educate decision makers. So in one way, it's trying to take a unique point of view by looking at the transatlantic relationship and talking about why these issues are particularly salient as we go forward. You were involved in a transatlantic effort. And one of the challenges people always raise when we talk about content moderation is the fact that different parts of the world define hate speech differently. The U.S. in particular has some constitutional requirements around free speech that would enable speech other countries consider hate speech. Um, So can you talk a little bit about what those differences are? And then I'd love to hear about whether it ended up really being a challenge as you thought about transatlantic challenges and opportunities to address them. Sure. So when you're looking at freedom of expression in the U.S., in the EU, and in individual countries in Europe, there are more similarities than differences. And everybody focuses on the differences. That's because in they're pretty pronounced. Um, in the U.S., we have the First Amendment, and that is supposed to protect citizens from government overreach. So it's really a negative right. In the EU and European context, the laws surrounding freedom of expression are designed to protect the citizens from the dangers and the excesses of hateful content. Coming out of World War II, they had more of a positive obligation for states to protect their citizens than a negative right. The most important thing in examining all of the the transnational law ended up being the fact that in both regimes, you could still have limitations on freedom of expression that would cover hate speech. So freedom of expression in the United States doesn't mean that you can't do anything based on true threats or other type of exceptions. I, I think it's the public perception of what the First Amendment means in the United States is where, where you run into problems. And so as you look at policy debates Let's start with the U.S. What do you think some of the greatest fallacies are that that are part of the policy debate as we look at online speech and and hate speech there? This is going to sound a little odd, but I think the biggest fallacy is that companies don't care. This challenge is really fundamental to the survival of social media and other internet-based businesses. When I hear people say that they just need to try harder or they need to put their best people on it, that indicates to me that those individuals don't have a a true understanding of the problem. The best people in the tech industry are dealing with this and companies are trying to invest in it. It's it's just a really hard problem. Yeah, that's that's always been my impression. Along that line, another thing that I've heard and I'd really, really curious as to your take on it, I've heard it proposed that when companies do get better about forcing hateful actors and their speech off of their platforms, that then they just migrate to another platform that has lower standards. And and it's almost worse because it's more of an echo chamber. What do you think about that? Is there validity to that? I think that's true in some regards. But if you look at what's happened to some of the worst actors, deplatforming seems to be working. The reason that it works is that a lot of people seem to produce hate speech or try to foment unrest as a way to gain notoriety or to amass personal wealth. Um, if you look at what happened to, what is Milo's last name? <laughs> I can never I don't remember. Never remember. It's very long. Thing. And, and, yeah, and, and that's kind of indicative that I can't even remember his name right now. Um, he's, he's a non-entity. 
And so when people fade from public attention, Milo tended to, to be a big player until he was kicked off of Twitter. And then being deprived of his megaphone, he, he found that he wasn't garnering that casual attention or he really only had the diehards. So when you deplatform someone, I think the diehards go with them, but they may lose their status as a public figure. So you quit reaching people who might be more initially more moderate in their views or not sort of so far down a particular path in terms of having extreme perspectives on uh, race, religion, et cetera. Britton, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but you obviously yourself sort of <laughs> in much earlier days uh, had the experience of being the victim of online harassment, um, which I know was a challenging situation. What advice would you give to people who them now find themselves in that type of situation? How do you deal with that? Oh, yeah, I'm happy to, to answer it. For a little more context, I was the Jane Doe in one of the first cyber harassment lawsuits while I was a, a student at Yale about 13 years ago. And what I learned from that is that the situation hasn't really changed for most people. Uh, we brought the suit trying to figure out if an average person who was being harassed online could get redress under the current structure of the law. And the answer is still no. So the, the advice that I give to many people, I still get approached probably two or three times a week by people who are targeted by harassment. The main advice that I give them is to basically try to work through their social support structures. A lot of times when you're dealing with this, it feels like you're all alone in the world. And so asking for help is probably the best way to do it. There's, there's not as much of a stigma today because people understand that this type of behavior is pervasive and that a lot of people are targeted and, and they didn't do anything wrong. So asking for help is, is number one. I think number two is to basically encourage people to go through the mechanisms that companies are setting up. They're not perfect, but that's actually the fastest way to, to get them to do anything about it because they've built out these systems to try to catch this type of behavior. And, and they do want to help, even if they're not always perfect. The final thing that people can do to reduce harassment and hate speech is when you encounter it, either offline or online, it's, it's the same thing. You should say something. It doesn't have to be aggressive or angry. You can, you can just say something that indicates that's not socially acceptable behavior, either in the online forum that you're on or, um, or offline. Just saying to a speaker of hate speech, that makes me really uncomfortable. Or I don't understand why you'd say that. Or I don't understand your, your reference. Why is that funny? Sort of holding people accountable for their words ends up being the best way to change their behavior. And doing it gently is more effective than being angry sometimes because you don't change people's minds by telling them that they're wrong. You change their minds by showing them that there's another way. That all sounds like good advice. It, it leads me to one more question, which is really around the issues of remedy and grievance mechanisms and so forth. I mean, in human rights law, there is a concept that you have a right to a remedy. And uh, I'd be curious, I guess, first, I know in the past there have been challenges with company grievance mechanisms uh, in terms of people being able to get responses in any kind of timely manner. Has that gotten better? 
It depends which platform, and it also depends on how new the type of activity that is being reported uh, tends to be. The newer things and the things that are just trending are are more challenging for companies to get their moderators to, to respond to. Oftentimes, and this isn't the best advice, but it shows how how fallible these systems are. I'll tell people to to, to do it again, to basically go through the system again, because if it if it didn't get caught the first time, or if the human reviewing it didn't respond appropriately the first time, sometimes the second time does the trick. When I looked at the uh, human rights impact assessment about the Facebook Oversight Board that came out on December 12th, I saw that the writers of the assessment recommended that the Oversight Board to basically provide remedy for people who bring the individual cases before the board. Wouldn't that be an overwhelming volume? The board is supposed to take a few representative cases. They're not supposed to be an internet court that will deal with every instance of content moderation. That's a really unsettled question, even even with the report. How is Facebook actually going to look at remedy? Are they going to provide it for individual users? Or are they going to try to provide it for a, a class of aggrieved people? That's something I'm really interested to see how, how it's going to work. Because yeah, the sheer numbers are significant in some cases, which I think can make us really challenging. How about legal remedy? I mean, you, you touched on that earlier, and um, the U.S. obviously has a specific approach to that in terms of in- intermediary liability. But can you explain the history behind that a little more and some of the pros and cons from your perspective? Sure. So Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act uh, which came out in 1996, provides intermediary liability for internet service providers. And what this means is that companies like Google, all the way down to individual bloggers, are not responsible for the content that other people post on their platforms and services. They don't incur legal liability. The liability attaches to the speaker. This has been important for companies as they were developing, because if America Online would have been legally responsible for every message, every post, every DM in their messenger app, that would have really stifled their growth. So that's the good side of it. The bad side of it is that it means um, companies haven't really done much to deal with people who are being silenced or targeted or harassed because it's legally not their problem. That perception seems to be changing more. There are proposals right now that, that some professors have made that look at redefining what media liability means under Section 230. And think about Daniel Citron and Ben Wittes' suggestion that we, we basically create a carve-out for people who are following best practices in this space. And if you're following best practices, then you get the intermediate then you get the protections from liability. If you're not, or you're creating like a website or a business entity that's sort of premised on illegal activity, um, you shouldn't get that type of carve out. Right. So it's a pretty, in some ways, it's really trying to target the really bad actors that are maybe not even negligent, but actually purposely taking advantage of the loophole is my understanding. Yes. So in the U.S., there's a lack of remedy for people who are victims of online harassment or hate speech. How about Europe? Is there a remedy there? So if we're looking at the way that remedy looks in the European context, most of that is is being addressed by individual states. 
And I think that's why you see a rash of new bills dealing with online harms. They see the, the companies as being an insufficient forum for providing this remedy. They're worried about protecting their citizens. So I think it comes from a good place. However, the type of constraints that are being written into law aren't really feasible when you look at the way that online speech works like um, proposing a 24 to 48 hour limit to removing controversial content. That's not really feasible unless you filter things out, which could have a negative impact on freedom of expression. Right, because you would over filter and take things down that should be able to be up, correct? Yes. Yeah, it seems like a real, it seems like we haven't quite found the right balance yet in terms of policy. Not yet, but I'm hopeful that, um, that we can do so soon. Britton, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today. I know we've barely tapped into your expertise uh, because you've been working on these issues for a long time, but I really, really appreciate your time and listening to your thoughts on a really important topic. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. To learn more about the intersection of technology and human rights, visit the Human Rights Initiative webpage at csis.org. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to help other people find us too.